Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for giving up your lunch time to come to this talk and this discussion on modernities, content and discontents in India and Pakistan. Our discussion today will be in the context of the last 60 years of developments in these two countries. I think of India and Pakistan as siblings who decided to draw a line of control between them. Together they comprise over one-fifth of the world's population who have had some successes which are also struggling with various challenges. For this discussion today, we, we, we have with us a very interesting panel of authors who have been writing through their facts and fictions addressing social, political, and economic issues of India and Pakistan. As a believer in equal representation, I'm very pleased that we have among the panelists equal representation of gender, as well as one each who, whose origins are from each of the two countries being discussed today. I'm not going to read their biographies, which are available online as well as here. So to start with, I'm going to request um, Nicholas Martin, who has actually conceived this um, this event to lay out the concept. And I'd also like to thank Louis Gaskell for putting together this event. So we'll have Nicholas Martin to go first. Nicholas. Yes, so um, I'm a social anthropologist working on Pakistan. And I, my, the head of my department asked me to uh, you know, have some ideas to set up an event on literature and politics in, in South Asia. And basically the idea behind this event was um, I often found when I was doing my own work that on Pakistan that literature was extremely helpful for me to understand, you know, sociological issues, which I'm interested in. Um, and, uh, and so I sort of had the idea it would be quite good to get people, you know, auth authors who are working on more macro sort of structural issues, but also people who, who look at the lives of individuals and how these bigger, you know, social structural trends are reflected through the lives of individuals. So um, hence the idea of getting this panel uh, with uh, novelists and uh, more sort of social scientific uh, people. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the, the concept. Thank you. So our first speaker this afternoon will be Patrick French. Thank you very much. Um, well, it's good to be uh, back at the LSE. I'm looking forward to the audience interaction, so I'll be comparatively brief. But just to look at some of the things that um, have come up in relation to what we're going to be discussing today. Um, I mean, I, I've, I've found very much in my own uh, writing that although it's uh, non-fiction, where possible I've tried to uh, tell the story through the experience of an individual, whether it's somebody who's been very successful or whether it's somebody who's had a, a terrible life, whether it's somebody like uh, Ramanujan, the great mathematician who we were discussing earlier, who in a way provides a kind of key to certain ideas of what was wrong, what was limited in what people could uh, do in India a hundred years ago as against today. Uh, whether it is uh, Venkatesh, who is a man who I met in a quarry close to Bangalore, who had spent nearly two years of his life chained up as a, a slave, in effect, as a, as a bonded laborer. His vision, his highly restricted vision of the world, of what he could expect, what he deserved, was in a way a, a glimpse into a much larger community of people who 
suffered really from birth a kind of discrimination which meant that their life choices were extremely uh, limited. The only time that he laughed during our interview was when I said to him, uh, did the local shepherds and farmers who knew that you were chained up not think of going to tell the police? That was what made him laugh, because it was such a, an unlikely idea, the idea that the police might have brought any uh, benefit uh, to him. Or another example would be uh, the story of Arushi Talwa, who by coincidence is the, or was the, the daughter of my uh, dentist, a girl who was murdered uh, in Noida, near Delhi. And the experience of her family being persecuted even though they are, in my view, almost certainly, in fact, certainly uh, innocent of the crime of her murder, gives a, a larger idea of, again, how the society operates and the fact that a family like that in Noida, living a fairly uh, happy, conventional, middle-class uh, middle life, can, when the system turns against them, be left without any rights uh, at all. But just to go from the specific to the general, um, I mean, I, I see the, the point that, that uh, Ruth and Nicholas have made about the estranged siblings of India and Pakistan, about the very obvious links between the two countries, whether it's food or whether it's language or how people dress, or whether when people go from India to Pakistan or vice versa, they always uh, feel a very strong sense of belonging and allegiance and tend to come home saying, I can't believe how friendly everybody was to me. You know, why are our two governments fighting? Uh, but the, the, the limitation of that view is that after so many years, I think for many people in India, the Pakistan connection is, in a way, uh, irrelevant. Partly because India is simply so big. The fact it has a population of 1.2 billion people means that there is a substantial uh, majority for whom the interaction with Pakistan is of no daily significance at all. And I notice this particularly doing interviews in Mumbai or in doing interviews in anywhere in central or south India, uh, Pakistan seemed to be something that was so far away that it really had very little to do with the uh, outlook that people had, either personally or socially uh, or politically. And of course, the kind of uh, challenges that Pakistan faces today in 2012, uh, leave aside the kind of challenges that were facing the two new nations in the 1940s or 1950s, are really very uh, different. There, there is a, a, almost an existential threat to the survival of, of Pakistan in its uh, current form, which means that it's become a huge subject of contention and debate. It means that for people like Kamala, she is probably obliged almost in a way that novelists from other countries are not to speak about her country and to try to analyze what is and what isn't happening. And I notice particularly that again and again when you read things about Pakistan, it's almost as if everybody has an opinion uh, regardless of whether they actually know anything particularly. It's a pla place where people constantly fly in and out of expressing opinions about because it's seen as a, a fulcrum of the, the future of not only Asia but also of the world. Um, so the estranged siblings thing, I, I think, in, in a way is a, a view that is perhaps less relevant today than it would have been in earlier uh, decades. But just to close, I'd like to... Um, look at one, one point that I think is very particular to India, which in a way does not apply to Pakistan because democracy has never taken root in quite the same way. But the way that I see or conceive democracy in India now is that it has almost developed in a way that it has not developed in any other uh, democratic country. 
I think of India as being hyper-democratic to the point where the implementation of democracy is more deep-rooted and in a way more profound than in almost any other country simply because of the clash of interests and the number uh, of people. To take three very quick examples, uh, the fact that somebody like Mamta Banerjee coming from her background was able to pull together a mass movement which kicked the communists out of power after more than 40 years last year is a truly extraordinary uh, popular movement. The fact that uh, 80 or 85% of people were turning out to vote in those state-level elections. Again, if you look at what's happening in UP and Uttar Pradesh at the moment, you have a whole range of different parties. Uh, leave aside the communists, leave aside the BJP. You have the, the in, in, a sense, in a sense, a triangular battle between the Samajwati Party uh, and Mayawati and Congress as represented by the, with the face of Rahul Gandhi. You have uh, extraordinary alliances between different groups, different castes, trying to work out a way to retake power or to, or to, or to, or to, or to continue in power in that state. That is a very deep-seated pro process. And again in Bihar, I mean, who would have thought that, that uh, a state like Bihar would now be in a situation where it has a 14% annual growth rate, where uh, the extent of corruption is uh, at, at one of the lowest levels of any state in India? Uh, and the fact that Nitish Kumar was able to come to power and assert himself in the way that it has uh, shows a, a kind of uh, depth and complexity to, to democracy that uh, exists in very few uh, other countries. And also the fact that the people who cons consistently come to power at state level are very often from uh, outside the mainstream. They're very often from backgrounds that would probably exclude them from senior political positions in a country like Britain or the United States. So I think that any consideration really of India or of India-Pakistan has to be looked at in the, con in, in the context of the depth of this democracy. There's a whole other question which is, uh, is democracy enough? Does the fact you've elected your leader mean that the problem is solved? Well clearly it doesn't, but I'll leave that uh, to one side for the moment because there are so many of us on the panel. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <coughs> Thank you, Patrick. I'd like to clarify about the siblings. I do believe siblings can be the best of friends and the greatest of rivals as well. So it is in that context that I was referring to India and Pakistan as siblings. Um, I now request Kamila Shamsi to speak about her view on this topic. Um, well, first of all, you know, there is an empty chair there, which is Anatole <laughs> Lieben. So I hope he shows up because um, I didn't come here thinking I would do the social analyst bit, but if required to, I, I will do some of it because as, as Patrick pointed out, um, if you're from Pakistan, um, it's been the case in the last few years that if you sit up in any public forum, even if it is to talk about literature, you inevitably um, find you're being asked other questions. Um, and of course, I also write, uh, or used to write, not so much anymore, columns around politics in Pakistan, so there's a, a reason for that. Um, but actually, I'm going to take that, that matter of siblings in a slightly different direction, which is to say that the novel that I've been working on for the last year or two is actually set in Peshawar. Um, and when you are writing a novel that is based in Khaybar Pakhtunkhwa near the Afghan border, you realize that this, this India-Pakistan thing, you know, it, it's a narrative that exists the closer you are to that particular border. Um, if you're looking at Peshawar, you're looking at the Durand line. Um, and so there's a very different sense of who the siblings are. 
um, and what the main narrative is and, and what sort of geopolitical conversations are of primary importance there. Um, and that's also worth keeping in mind, I think, is that when we talk about Pakistan, very often it's a sort of dominant Punjab narrative um, that gets discussed, and yet there are these other conversations going on in Pakistan in different ways of seeing um, and different sort of um, ways of of having connections. I'm from Karachi, where the largest ethnic group still um, is Mohajir or those whose families migrated from India. So there's a different connection there. Um, I grew up with my Indian relatives in and out of my grandmother's house. Most of my friends had never met an Indian until they went to university. Um, so you live within these very different sort of realities about yourself and your neighborhood, um, even as you're growing up in Pakistan. Um, of course, anything I say about literature has to be predicated on this simple fact that I write in and I read the English language. I mean, I can read Urdu. Um, I haven't read very much Urdu fiction. I've certainly not read any Urdu fiction of the last few years. Um, and so anything I say about the literature <coughs> is actually not just about the literature that is written by and read by at all a small percentage of the population, that's the part that's usually discussed. There's another part which is because there are no real English language publishing houses, it's also the fiction that comes out of Pakistan is the fiction that is published, and everyone says in the West, but actually the biggest market for Pakistani fiction is India. Um, and that's become a very, very interesting um, Indo-Pak uh, conversation um, because there are now a large number of writers who were either published first in India or are only published in India. Um, and there are more Pakistani writers being published in India, f far more than are being published anywhere else. Um, and if you link that to the fact that India is the world's largest growing English language publishing scene, something very interesting is going on with that. You know, you, you've heard for when Indian writers first started writing and being praised in England, and America to a lesser de degree, there was this critique that came out, oh, well, they're writing for the Western market. Um, and when Pakistani writers started writing in rather lazy slipstream fashion, the same line got used. And I keep waiting for the day we're being told we're writing for the Indian market. It's going to come, and it'll be much more interesting. Um, and I'm being serious, it will be much more interesting because you can't do the same, oh, this is exotica line, because very often, um, you're writing about cultural affinities. So, for instance, Moni Mohsin's fantastic Diary of a Social Butterfly, which is a brilliant piece of satire um, and one of the finest books out of Pakistan, was published for, in India and only in India um, and in Pakistan, but it didn't get a publisher here. Um, and Moni was still looking, you know, there's too many local references or too much reliance that your readers must understand something of Urdu, Punjabi, you know, Hindi. So it won't work elsewhere, but it would work in India, and it worked brilliantly in India. I think it did fantastically well, right, Meru? Um, and, and so there is that cultural affinity um, and that knowledge um, that, and those shared assumptions. But what you also have is politically such a huge divide um, across which we look at each other. Um, the stereotypes and assumptions I come across in India towards Pakistan are far more damning and awful than anything I've come across in England uh, towards Pakistan, and it's the same conversely. Um, so there's going to be, I think, a very interesting conversation that will start and, and should have already started about what the, the, the role of fiction writers is, and English language fiction writers um, in the Indo-Pak conversation. Um, and I think that hasn't yet 
no one's quite twigged that. Um, everyone's made a big noise about the fact that Pakistani writers are doing well in India, but we haven't gone beyond that to critique what it could mean um, and how we should look at it. Um, I want to, I'm just going to say a couple more things. On that, that matter of Pakistani writers feeling obliged, um, feeling obliged to, to speak about their nation, the obligation isn't for me so much, and I think this is true, you know, because a lot of the other Pakistani writers are my friends and, and we talk about these things. I don't think it's so much this external factor that the world wants to know about Pakistan and therefore you feel your fiction must give the answer. Um, I don't write fiction to give anyone else the answer. I, I write fiction very often because there's a question that I want to look at. Um, and so very often where that obligation to write about these matters comes from, because a lot of Pakistani fiction writing um, in English and in other languages is quite political or interested in politics and history, that, that sense of obligation actually comes from a desire to fill the gaps and silences we've grown up around. Um, I'm interested in writing about Peshawar because I grew up in Karachi knowing almost nothing about Peshawar. I knew far more about Delhi than I did about Peshawar because that's where my father's family was from um, and because Karachi had a very large contingent of migrants from Delhi. Um, and so what is this place? And what is Peshawar? What is its history? What happened there? Balochistan. What is Balochistan? What's happening there? Um, what has been happening there? How did we become this particular nation rather than that other one that people might have dreamt about? Um, 1971, the creation of Bangladesh, you don't hear about that in schools. You don't hear about that in drawing rooms. Um, so if you're a fiction writer, I think you notice silences within the nation. Um, and then you look for the stories behind them. And I think a lot of quite interesting fiction um, is beginning to come out of that from the writer's own urges um, to find what those silences are really concealing. Thank you, Camilla, <coughs> for having <laughs> We now have Reshma um, Good afternoon. Um, I started life as a social scientist here at the LSE, and um, I've sort of made the transition to, a, a literary, uh, to somebody who writes literature. And as such, um, and one of the sort of impulses driving me to creatively depict um, the reality that I saw around me was um, to give a human face to the statistics that one you know, sees banded around. You know. What does you know, poverty, what does infant mortality rate, what does um, life expectancy or the status of women, what do these indices, you know, what, does, what is the story behind these indices? So after LSE, I went to work with the UN as well, and I worked in the field um, in sub-Saharan Africa as well as in um, UP. And, uh, there I got to hear about, um, well, the ordinary man, you know, the, his struggles. Are, and I came back and I wanted to portray that. But uh, my angle, I mean, I approached this whole India-Pakistan uh, debate or dialogue or conversation, call it what you will, but uh, I, would I approach it at an angle. And my angle particularly is that of a diasporic uh, Asian or Pakistani, someone that we can all relate. We all occupy this sort of... Um, hyphenated state at the moment, you know. So in, uh, whereas our sort of and sentimental and cultural attachments may be to, um, you know, say India or Pakistan, our cultural memory, but our reality is here very much in, in the West. 
And what I, through my fiction, my um, uh, sort of approach, and I'm interested in writing about characters who sort of negotiate this sort of schism between, you know, how do they reconcile tradition and modernity? How do they, in terms of whether is it, how do they balance their individual choices and aspirations against, say, family, you know, expectations and norms? And in terms of women, you know, how do they find their empowerment, sense of empowerment, or, you know, how do they deal with generational hierarchies or a patriarchal setup? Where, you know, they have all this, um, well, the sort of the Western influences all around. So it's a very sort of slippery, um, it's a very emotive issue and one I think that we can all relate to and which as the world grows smaller, shrinks more and more, I think it's something that will occupy and preoccupy us more and more, especially for second generation, um, uh, you know, diaspora, well, students like yourself, you know, who are straddling two cultures and maybe, you know, who have sort of portable roots, you know, they, you know, you'll speak English or converse in sort of the pop lingo of the day and then you come home and you slip back into whatever, you know, salwar kameez or, you know, when your elders come, you touch their feet. So it's fascinating the way we scissor in and out of uh, cultures. And, and that's what I want to do in my books is to see how you occupy and how do you define home then in that sense where your boundaries are so, where your roots are so fluid and portable, you know, how do you define home and belonging, you know? And also, as a writer who has um, sentimental and cultural affinity to India, but who spent most of my li her life abroad, uh, I want to see, you know, how, you know, how would I portray, you know, what, uh, how can I sort of uh, portray the reality of India, you know, how do I have an authority, you know, as someone who's writing in English, and I mean, I can empathize uh, and I can maybe even have a sentimental attachment or a stake in it, but who is my audience? And you know, like Camilla said, you know, we have to really bear in mind, you know, are we writing for the, are we informing Indians about India or are we talking to the Western, you know, the Western concept of, uh, you know, what India is? And in that sense, I feel um, in terms of Indian literature, I think there's been a move, you know, uh, in the sort of, there was an earlier wave of Indian writers writing in English, like Anita Desai or uh, Vikram Seth or Kiran Desai and uh, Amit Chaudhary to a certain extent. Uh, and their writing was a, sort of a nostalgic portrayal of India. And um, it was about relationships and um, about issues, but it was, they weren't really angry. They were reflective, gentle st tales almost. You know, they did, fig they did talk about conflict, but it wasn't, they weren't pol political novels. Whereas um, in the last couple of years, you know, you've seen a new generation of writers who are like, uh, well, Arvind Adiga being the most sort of notable, then there's Suketu Mehta and um, Pankaj Mishra, etc. They're writers who have sort of combined a journalistic flair of fact-finding with, uh, and it sort of uh, dressed it up in a creative, you know, writing and this uh, their reality of India is the real reality of the common man you know of the small man who who's dreaming big and there's thus been a shift in um, focus and that's something really fascinating I think Indian literature at the moment is going through a real sort of dynamic uh, renaissance much like um, and that's been aided by well the internet Facebook Twitter and um, websites, you know, well, thehelka.com, et cetera. You know, so there's a whole sort of um, feeling that uh, establishment of modernity, you know, these, all these sort of big banners, um, ideas need to be challenged.
and um, questioned. And one of the and the role of the writer, I think, in this is to act not just as a mirror to reflect these changes that are happening in Indian society, but also to be an engine of change in that sense. So uh, to be a writer writing at the moment about India or Pakistan or about the diasporic experience is something that's really exciting, you know, and um, I feel privileged to be in that position. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Reshmi. Our fourth speaker has not yet arrived, so what we'll do is, if he turns up, we will give him a chance whenever he does turn up, but, and, which means we have a lot of time for discussion, and I will open it to the floor, but listening to the three of you, I, I'd like us, I mean, I'd, I'd like your comments a little bit more on the concept of identity. Now, Patrick French is married to an Indian lady, so he is eligible for um, a person of Indian origin or citizen of, uh, overseas citizen of India status. And we have, um, um, we have Reshma, who's Italian, living in Britain, born in India, and Kamila, who has been in Pakistan, but has been living in, in London. So I'd like, uh, maybe we'll go this way, <laughs> to give your thoughts on identity and local global identity or individual identity. Um, I think, you know, people say that a cat has nine lives, and, you know, I can <laughs> totally empathize with the cat because I feel that uh, I have, um, you know, uh, undergone lots of sort of reincarnations and rebirths in my life. And to start at the very root, in fact, my own sort of, um, I've had a sort of split birth in the sense my father grew up in what is now Pakistan, you know, he was from Sargoda and then born in Lahore. And after the partition, he went, um, you know, he started life in a refugee camp in Delhi. And so his childhood, you know, I grew up with his sort of childhood memories of his uh, sort of, uh, you know, well, playing truant from school in Lahore or so. So that sort of uh, childhood memory was there. And then my mother was from Punjab, but from the other side. So she saw the reality of Punjab from another si uh, angle. I grew up in Bihar because my father was in the civil service. So, uh, and we, he was posted in Bihar. And again, that was the Bihari mentality was very much different to the Punjabi mentality. and. Uh, I, so I absorbed that influence, then moved to, London, uh, to Delhi, and then when I was quite young, we moved to Rome, and Italy in the 70s was very different, 70s or 80s was a totally different animal to what it is now. And that's, I mean, it's quite a sort of a wounded country at the moment, you know, but at that time it had lost none of its swagger. I mean, it was... Uh, still sort of reeling a bit from maf the mafia wars, and but it was very much a place of bella figura and where you lived for the moment. And that, in a way, it sort of echoed the sort of the Punjabi mentality of living well and, and uh, you know, uh, thinking about today, not worrying about tomorrow. So that was another influence in it. So, you know, I feel that I've been sort of a mosaic of different, um, you know, influences. And of course, then I had that sort of interlude at, at the LSE, and then I went back and uh, I was, after marriage, I was in Rome and then in Paris again. Uh, and in terms of marriage as well, I find that, you know, I, like Patrick was saying, I mean, India has such a big sort of, you know, the sort of regional different ethnicities. I've married somebody who's from a different caste, you know. 
he's a Marwari, and uh, if I was sitting in the audience, <laughs> no, and uh, so they have their own cultural set of values and uh, traditions, and so I've managed to assimilate and absorb that as well. So for me, identity, uh, with my, from my sort of personal point of view, is something that can be. It's a work in progress, you know. It's never a sort of absolute or fixed. But may, there might be an inner core, you know, what uh, the social scientist, you know, Bordeaux says, you know, we all are born with a sort of cultural capital or national memory inside us. So we, there is that sort of uh, kernel of what you are. But it's obviously, you know, you can keep molding it. You know, it's like a, a sort of plasticine, really. I'm quite taken by the idea of the Italian-Punjabi uh, connection because <laughs> you know that a lot of uh, uh -huh. buffalo mozzarella now yeah. is made by Sikhs who've come from Punjab to yeah. teach the Italians how to make cheese. Um, and in fact, this is a, a second-hand story. It was told to me by somebody in Chennai, in fact. Uh, and he was talking about when he was in Moscow... He was talking about when he was in Moscow airport and he, uh, so he was a Tamil, he was in Moscow airport, and he noticed a Punjabi, large Punjabi family who were sitting waiting for their flight. And uh, so he got talking to them, and they were going to Chile to open a farm. And none of them had ever been to Chile before, but they'd bought the land, and they heard it was good for farming, and they knew how to farm, and so they were moving. And the grandmother had an electric iron plugged in. And guess what she was using the electric iron for? She was using it to heat chapatis on the electric. <laughs> <laughs> so that shows the versatility and the adaptability of Punjabis anywhere uh, in the universe. Let's, let's say the whole universe. So, so anyway, on the, on the personal side, um, I, I think that uh, you know, there, there, are, there are some countries where, where you can assimilate in, into that country. Uh, I, I find it very striking in the United States the way that you will meet people of South Asian origin who've only maybe been there for 10 years or let's say 20 years, but they seem completely American uh, in their intonation, in how they speak and how they think. Uh, you get that to some extent in Britain, not so much, but you get it to some extent. Uh, in India, that is not possible. If you're the, the PIO, the person of Indian origin, you're from outside, you, you definitely are always the, the outsider. And in fact, you know, I, think, I think part of India's character today does come from the fact that there has been almost no uh, immigration into India for about 500 years. So if you go back to earlier centuries, it's very much a feature of what made India what it is. But in the last several hundred years, it's not a feature of Indian life. And so assimilation is, is pretty much impossible, I think. Um, just one, one thing that I was thinking while you both were, were speaking is, uh, you know, you, you mentioned, um, Reshma mentioned the idea of uh, books about the common man and that being a kind of new way of, of writing. I mean, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't agree with that because I think that if you, if you look at, for example, the, the, the Avendadiga book, mm -hmm. um, that is the, the view of uh, an expat coming as a journalist mm -hmm. and then writing a novel. So it, it's almost an imagined idea of what the common man might be thinking or how he, he or she might react. And I, I do feel quite often reading... Um, books by Indian or Pakistani authors that there is, a, there is a disjuncture between the experience that's being written about and the social position or background of that person. And that's partly to do with language, it's partly to do with the fact that your audience is either going to be a certain group within India or Pakistan or it'll be somebody overseas. Uh, but 
I, ju I just wonder where you both think that is heading. I mean, is there going to be a new kind of writer emerging, English language writer emerging in India and Pakistan, who is actually representing a different uh, social uh, group? Um, you know, on the point of uh, Arvind Adiga, you know, I agree, you know, a lot of these sort of um, so-called, you know, the new wave of Indian writers, um, they are writing from position of privilege, you know. Um, and, you know, the question you have to ask is, who is the audience? And I, f I feel that um, if you're writing for India, but uh, English is a minor, it's a language of privilege in India, isn't it? You know, it's a f um, for a country where, you know, there's a lot of illiteracy, there's a lot of, um, you know, I can't remember, I think it's 40% illiteracy still. And uh, where regional languages, there's a strong culture of um, regional literature. I feel that with this sort of uh, dominance of English as an elite language of communication and literature, uh, regional literature, language, uh, lit well, novels written in Bengali or Kannara or Tamil, etc. You know, they might not be getting their just due. So you know, when we say that who you know a writer who will emerge, I feel that maybe you know that writer does exist. You know, he or she is already operating there, but because of our lack of you know, because of uh, and that particular work is sort of lost in translation. You know, so. um, you know I think. In Pakistan, the English-speaking population is even smaller than, than in India. Yeah. Um, but you do, I mean, there is, it's not that there's no variety. I mean, I think if you look at Muhammad Hanif, Daniel Moinuddin, and Nadeem Aslam, who enters a separate category by virtue of being British Pakistani. So he's um, from, you know, it which sort of complicates the whole question mm. a lot. Um, there is variation in there. Um, but it is still, you know, it's, 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 it is, a language of privilege, um, and there are certain mm -hmm. things that it brings along with it, and I don't actually see that um, changing in the near future. Uh, but to the question of identity, I mean, for me it, personally, it's never been a question, and because it's never been a question, it's never been a matter of interest. And I don't mean this as an, I don't, I'm sort of not dissing those for whom it is. It's a simple statement of fact that, you know. I grew up in Karachi, I'm from Karachi, now I live in London, I used to study in America, I'm from Karachi. Um, but I think it, it, you know, if you spend your entire life growing up in one place, as I did in Karachi, I think you just carry that around with you. So you know, my four, four grandparents were from Delhi, Lucknow, Rampur, and Berlin, but I'm from Karachi. You know, and that, that was sort of simple and un uncomplicated. So I've never been really interested in that, but I am interested um, in identity in Pakistan. Um, because what you have is a very interesting thing, which is the question about what does Pakistan tell itself about its own history? You know, how, how do nations form identity? And it's very linked to the idea of history. Is, is Pakistan's history the history of Muslims in the subcontinent? Um, in which case, one of the most important historical buildings of Pakistan would be the Taj Mahal, which you can't get to because you almost never get visas. Um, or is it a, or is, um, say, one of the Gandhara Buddhas from Takhte Bahi, um, is that a more important, is Takhte Bahi one of the more important historical sites of Pakistan? Um, could all the Pakistanis in the audience raise their hands? <laughs> How many of you have been to Takhte Bahi? Uh, well, no, that's confusing. Uh, raise your hands if you're from Pakistan. Okay, and now put your hands down if you've never been to Takhte Bahi. 
Yeah. yeah. Never even heard of it. I've never been either. Um, it is a fantastic, fantastic old Buddhist monastery. Um, a very large amount of the great Gandharan art that we get is from Taktebahi. Most of us have never heard of it. Hardly any of us have ever been there. It's not considered one of the great historical monuments of Pakistan. It's in Pakistan. How many of us have heard of the Taj Mahal? <laughs> right. Um, and so there's, there is, well, how many of us can get visas for India? I mean, so that's a different question. You can go to Taktebahi if you're from Pakistan. You can't go to Taj Mahal. I've been to India six times. I've never been, got a visa for Agra. I'm in Delhi. I can't go to see the Taj Mahal. Right, so that's a whole different issue. Um, but there is this question that what happens when you disconnect the history of your nation from the territory in which the nation exists? When you say the history of Pakistan is not necessarily what happened in this space, something weird goes on. Um, it causes a problem in trying to define what it is to be part of that nation, and that's why it's much easier to be Baloch to be Pathan, or to be Mesud, or to be Afridi, you know, because you can say this is our language, these are our songs, this is our territory. Um, you try and create that across Pakistan without that shared territorial history, and things really start to get very confusing. And it, it is part of actually what makes Pakistan extremely interesting and, and fecund place for the fictional <laughs> imagination. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, actually, that leaves us a lot of time for discussion. Just quick comments on the newspapers in English uh, in India. Um, firstly, it's about I was very surprised when I was in Vancouver and heard that um, many of the farmers in Vancouver, the large farmers, were of Punjabi origin. Mm -hmm. And um, we also have this phrase in India, and I, I think it can include Pakistan, which says, indigenous, which is what Patrick was talking about, that enterprising, mm -hmm. innovative um, character of um, South Asians. Um, then also the Indian papers, the, it's the newspapers in vernacular languages, which are still the biggest sales rather than English newspapers in India. Although when you go to the urban areas and in the cities, you will see most, you will rarely see lang papers in regional languages, but they are actually a very small proportion of the market compared to the vernacular papers. So um, I'll now open the f to the floor. We'll take three questions at a time, and when you saying question, please also um, mention if you want any one of them in particular to answer your question. One. Okay, so this gentleman here in the blue shirt and the lady with the red scarf and the lady with the pink sweater. Hi, uh, my name is Ankit. Um, um, I'm originally from India, but I've been living in England since I was 11 years old. And um, I wanted to pick up on what the, the whole panel talked about in terms of identity. Um, one of the uh, things I've noticed about British Pakistanis in this country, well, British Pakistan, people who were born and bred in the UK but have their origins uh, or of the heritage from Pakistan, a lot of them identify uh, with uh, Islam first mm -hmm. and then Pakistan second or Britain second or something like that. I'm, 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 I might have missed something but I didn't hear the word Islam used even once, which is commendable because a lot of people rush to use that word when talking about India Pakistan. But you can't avoid it because I think it's... it's I did say Muslims. Ah, okay, okay. <laughs> Technicality. Um, so, so a lot of British Pakistanis and perhaps British Indians as well, but it's much more um, 
visible amongst the Pakistanis who have an allegiance to, appear to have an allegiance to Islam first and their country, whatever it might be, second. How do you think that discourse plays out um, in the sense of India being ostensibly a secular country and Pakistan being explicitly an Islamic country? Um, <coughs> two ladies here. Um, I have a question to um, Kamila Shamsi, and it's regarding um, when you said that about that is as a Pakistani, it's easier to be a Balochi or a Pathan or a, uh, a Punjabi or a Sindhi, or for that matter, a, um, a Muhajir or whatever it is they call themselves. We um, call ourselves Muhajir. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, isn't it? Can't you say? I mean, from my perspective, and from when I have been traveling around in Pakistan, I think that they're all representation of what it is to be a Pakistani. Mm -hmm. They're all diverse realities sure. or diverse, mm -hmm. um, um, I, well, yeah, diverse personalities of what it is to be a present-day Pakistani. Mm -hmm. Lady in black. Um, my question is mainly for Camilla, but also for the rest of the panel. Um, and when you're talking about uh, fiction, as you're writing about the silences, I'm intrigued as to what your silence was that you were writing about when you wrote Burnt Shadows. And, um, and also, when you're talking about there being a silence, it also makes one think about what's the elephant in the room? What is the, what is the elephant that you as an author are trying to kind of bring to light and that kind of makes me want to ask the whole panel is there any silence or elephant in the room that you in particular are trying to work on now or would like to address at some point in the future so we'll have um, Camilla first and then okay. um, you know for the question about Islam over Pakistan I, I can't really answer that because it is a question for British Pakistanis um, you know and so you're probably in a better position to answer that than I would I would ask a question um, which is, they choose Islam over Pakistan, but how does their ethnic grouping play into that? Um, but I, you know, I, it's not, it's not, it is a question for a group that I, you know, I'm not comfortable speaking for or, or about really. Um, so I, I would throw that back at you. Um, in, you know, if, if you turn the question on to say, in Pakistan, do people identify as Muslims over Pakistanis? I would say it depends on the context. Um, do they identify as Muslims over Pathans, over Pakistanis? Anatole Levin isn't here now, so I'm going to speak for him, because I'm, by repeating something he said to me a couple of weeks ago when we were in Karachi um, for the literature festival there, he'd been at Peshawar University, and there was a very crowded lecture hall um, of students there, and he said, which law do you think it's more significant to follow, or you know, is more Sharia law? Pashtun Wali, right? So the law of Islam or the law of the Pashtun people. And everyone said Pashtun Wali, and he said, except one group, can you guess who the group was? And I could, women. Mm -hmm. Women said Sharia law over Pashtun Wali. Okay? So there are all kinds of very interesting, you know, subsections within that question of, of how identity is formed. And very, very often it is, it is a question of context, I think, um, and what the conversation is. But certainly in Pakistan, it's, it's a complicated question. Um, how does tribe and sect intersect? Um, you know, there are, there are, how does caste and sect intersect? I, th I think it's, it's a much more complicated question in Pakistan, I don't know about here, but in Pakistan it's much more complicated by, than saying they are Muslims rather than Pakistanis. Um, the second question about diverse reality, do all these different parts of Pakistan, don't they just reflect the diverse realities of Pakistan? Of course. But let me put it this way as a novelist. 
Um, you have a novel. Within it, you have different characters. And they're all part of the same novel. And they all work together within the novel. But what's the framing narrative? You need that framing narrative as well, and also the diverse parts of it. Uh, when we're playing cricket, that's the framing narrative. You know, we're Pakistani then. Um, but it, it is, I think, th certainly diversity is a very important part of Pakistan. And I really, nothing annoys me more when, when people in a really facile com uh, comparison of India and Pakistan say that Pakistan is monocultural, by which they mean all Muslims are the same. Um, because it is, of course, nothing even remotely monocultural about the country, not in terms of its languages, not in terms of its sects, not in terms of um, its history, its culture, its food, its topography, anything. Um, so yes, there are diverse realities. The diverse realities are part of Pakistan, but what is the overarching agreed on narrative? Um, that's another question. Um, as for what the silence was that I was thinking of with Burnt Shadows, it was actually a silence that the book moved away from it eventually, but the starting point was, um, I remember the day Pakistan tested its nuclear bomb. I was not in Karachi at that moment, um, but it was sort of you know, a horrible moment for me. And, and a friend of mine from Karachi emailed me in great despair to say that in her office, people were handing out boxes of sweets with the Urdu letters Bay Meem spelling bum on them. And it was a great cause of celebration. And I mean, I understand why. You know, I'm not, I'm, it's sort of the next door neighbors who we've been at war with often have had this bomb. We need it as well. But the one conversation you never had in Pakistan is what does a, this bomb do? Ask people what the effects of the nuclear bomb are. It's shocking to me, even among what I think are very educated people, uh, you know, it's terrible. Okay, but be very specific about the ways in which it's terrible and what it does. Um, and there's silence. I, I realized that sort of my images of it, you know, I had the image of the mushroom cloud and then a couple of images. But what does the nuclear bomb actually do? And that was the first question. That's when I, the book starts in Nagasaki on the 9th of August, 1945. Um, and that was what I started with, was simply, what does the bomb do? And, and I'll tell you, if you read enough testimony of, of the Hibakusha, the survivors, um, th that matai starts to taste awfully rancid. Mm. Contemplating this. <laughs> uh, I mean, presumably it makes it less likely that India will cross the line of control. It's, I mean, that, that is the... Because their conventional sure. advantage disappears. It's, it's the line. You always think, but, you know, India and Pakistan have often been known for misjudging what the other one will do. I'm, you know, mm. And I, it, it's not an India-Pakistan question. It is a nuclear weapon question. You really can't have the only country that's only ever used the atom bomb say, no, Iran, you're not allowed, without <laughs> a lot of people saying, uh, <clears throat> excuse Why? me. Um, and you can't say, well, we, we can't bomb North Korea because they've got the bomb without making everyone else want it. I mean, these are the simple facts of the world we live in. Um, but there is a problem with it. Mm. Yeah. Yes, it's spread the wealth. Why should only a few have the ability to destroy the world? Give it to everyone. <laughs> well, this is a whole new trickle-down effect. Um, well, yes, that I mean... That was a joke, <laughs> incidentally. <laughs> the A.Q. Khan joke, okay. Mm -hmm. um, so, there are, in a way, the three questions that were, were asked from the audience were, were all about the related point, but the, the key one, I think, is the first one, uh, your, your question. And, I mean, the... The simple answer is that it's the way in which uh, nationhood is taught. Uh, 
It's actually several years since I looked at, at Pakistani school textbooks, but Indian school textbooks have got a lot better in recent years. They're a lot more reasonable, they're a lot more balanced, they're a lot less uh, propagandistic than they, than they used to be, uh, which I suspect is not the, the case so much uh, in Pakistan. And it's very clear that if you, if you look at early teaching in India, it's very much about the idea of <coughs> nationhood, the idea that uh, region or religion or caste is of secondary importance to your allegiance to the, to the Indian flag. That is certainly not the case in the way in which civics are taught in Britain, if they're taught at all. So, uh, you know, looking at that problem, particularly of second <coughs> generation people of Pakistani origin in the UK, that complete lack of allegiance really is to do with a very kind of amorphous multicultural idea that initial identity should be privileged over the idea of some kind of community cohesion. And you notice it again and again. I mean, I, I notice it close to where I live, where this is actually going back two or three years, but there were, there were boys or young men who, who were clearly of, of Pakistani Punjabi origin who were dressed up in Arab costumes handing out propaganda uh, about Palestine. They were not saying anything about what was then going on in Swat. They were not saying anything about the persecution of Ahmadiyya butchers in Tooting. So there was a problem from Pakistan being exported or imported to Britain, which was really nothing to do with uh, that community as it would have existed, let's say, 40 years ago. But it was simply a, a kind of proving ground or a fighting ground for, for external ideas. So what all of this question about identity comes down to is the way in which children are taught and the ideas that children are taught uh, in school. And just to, to briefly refer to what, what you said earlier, I think that, that part of the, the problem that, that you identified in Pakistan about where allegiance lies comes from, uh, if you like, post-1970s uh, ideas of Pakistan's own history, where increasingly, and I'm going back to really to the time when I was researching liberty or death in the 90s, so I may be a little out of date, but it was very much the idea that Pakistan's own history had to be seen in terms of its Muslim history rather than being seen in terms of its pan-Indian history, uh, which in itself means that you, to extent, have to reinvent or reinterpret your history in order to show certain lineages which may, uh, perhaps in the 19th century, have not seemed particularly uh, important. So all of this really comes down in the end to, to social engineering. Why does somebody who happens to be Muslim, who happens to be born in India, have a certain set of ideas as against the ideas that, some, that somebody might have in Pakistan? It's all in the end about uh, education and social engineering. Um, I'll, I'll just, um, I mean obviously I, you know, I'm Indian and Hindu in origin, but I've got a lot of Pakistani friends and um, uh, I claim to have some sort of empathy and insight into the, um, the situation. I think with Pakistan, I think the partition in 1947 left a deep psychological scar, you know, and uh, something that really had an impact on the Pakistani identity. For a long time, Pakistan saw itself as a country that almost had to ju justify its uh, existence. and. Um, and then uh, geography is destiny in Pakistan's case. And this, once this sort of, um, they got over the, pa the uh, Pakistani psyche had got over the partition, they became a sort of victims, pawns, stooges, what you will, in the sort of Cold War between America and Soviet Union. So now, uh, when, uh, when you talk about the Pakistan, it's always, 
in relation to, say, Afghanistan or Iran. It's, a, a sort of, it's almost like a corridor leading from one country to another. Nobody is really interested in what Pakistan really wants for itself. It's, you know, what can Pakistan do to serve X, Y, Z, what interest? And, uh, and coming with sort of uh, narrowing the narrative to the Pakistani sort of uh, immigrant community here, I feel that, um, as that, uh, the gentleman said, uh, they seem to tend to think of Islam first and then of uh, being sort of Pakistani second. In a sense, I think the uh, nature of the Islam is such, you know, there's the strong sense of international solidarity and brotherhood that is lacking in Hinduism, you know. And uh, where the Indian immigrant community differentiates itself from the Pakistani community in Britain is mainly because of that. And because of the sort of our regional particularities of Hinduism, you know, you know that you'll have Jains or uh, Brahmins or, you know, um, Buddhists or Vaishnavis, whatever. You know, we all follow our own sort of private little paths to God. And there's no sense of uh, an overarching Hindu, what God, a pan-Hindu conscience, you know, it's a very much an individual and um, a private um, way of practicing or of implementing your own values. Whereas in uh, and uh, whereas in sort of Pakistani, and also the other thing that's uh, very important is the role of economic and economics and education. I think the Indian community here have really gone for uh, education, for literacy, and for um, they have tried to assimilate, you know, as opposed to, you know, sort of, they've almost been all, maybe they've been too timid in, uh, you know, demanding their own rights or demanding a sort of a recognition of who they are. But as an immigrant community, they want to blend in as much as possible and to keep their head down and to work hard. And it's a very much a sort of individual career path, you know, that they're interested in. Uh, Thank you. So we can have another round of questions. So the gentleman in the front, for and the lady. Um, well, okay, we have time, and we've got two ladies here, and then we we have time, so we'll come back. We'll take three questions. So the gentleman in the front. To Patrick French, I enjoyed reading his book, Hair, which was given to my daughter who studied LSE, MSE, two of them. It's very good. I recommend to everybody else to read it, which is really biography, where yours one is fiction. You've never been to Peshawar or whatever. You didn't board the Peshawar site. Though I was born near Sagoda, Gujaramala, before Indian partition, a few months old. Having said that, I think the main thing is education. We are in Bihar, in Gujarat, Modi, and Nitish Kumar has done wonders to India. And biggest problem, I want to ask Patrick, who's been to India, written book so nicely, how Indian corruption can be eliminated, and the power of dynasty, Indian dynasty, should be eradicated. And also, coming back to the question of a uh, young lady over here, Kamila Shamsi, that Mohajir community still living in a very bad shape, shanty towns in Karachi, while people like us, my parents came from Gujramala, we have assimilated in India without, we struggle very hard, we struggle hard here as well. And last one will say a question there, we Hindus, British Hindus, <coughs> they call them British Hindus. Our children are very proud to be pro-British. I'm half Indian, half British. 
so like you said quite right, I think best way to simulate this country and do not go out of way to cause problems. We accept the law of the land, we work within the law of the land, then we promote our culture. We don't demand anything, we have to earn it. This is my views how to how to go ahead. Thank you, Patrick. Your book is A1. Thank you. <laughs> two, two ladies. Um, hi, thank you for the discussions. They were really interesting. I'm a research student working on history at SOAS, and my focus is on working class resistance in Pakistan. And toward that end, I found a lot of what you what you said was very interesting. But I would like to push you on trying to explain what it is when you what it is you mean when you say Pakistani or Indian. Are we referring to the nation state, as some of us have you have hinted that you are? Are you referring to a particular class, a particular religious sect? And indeed. Um, I think that is fundamental in informing whose modernity we're talking about because political history in effect in Pakistan really didn't begin uh, in the same way in 1947 with the same kind of adherence to Islam that we see today, right? So just as an example, in, in 1953 in Pakistan, you had anti-Ahmadiyya agitations at the same time that you had a very strong communist leftist uh, student movement which started in Karachi and then spread to other centers as well. So in that sense that adherence to Islam wasn't uniform, perhaps it's better to say that uh, the Pakistani state saw a particular strand of ideological uh, you know, thought and picked it up and said, this is what is Pakistani, so all of you, the rest of you now be quiet. You know, perhaps that's the way to think about it. So I just wanted your, your comments mm -hmm. on that. Thank you. you. pass the mic to the lady behind you. Thank you. Um, I'd just like to ask Kamala Shamsi a question regarding modernity's discontent and um, especially focusing on writing in English mm -hmm. in a country where the literacy rate is awfully poor mm -hmm. and the fact that there is rampant social stratification. I was wondering what you felt, um, how you felt that the language factor contributed towards further strengthening this discontent and whether you felt that maybe um, especially in a country like Pakistan where there is a social divide that is exasperated through religious extremism, whether this divide serves to worsen the situation in any way. Thank you. So we'll have Patrick, then Kamala. And then okay, well, I, I know there are still more questions to come, so I'll, I'll only touch on some of the things that have been asked. But in answer to the, to the first question, uh, the, the question of corruption in India is so complicated because it's so deep and it does benefit certain people. And the people whom it benefits, who are, who are not a small number of people, don't want it to go away. Uh, but my impression is that the, the, the places where inroads have been made most effectively, Bihar would be a good example, have been really through some kind of transparency where it's actually possible to prove directly in a very simple way when somebody is corrupt. And there are certain technological mechanisms that make that easier than it would have been. One simple example would be food distribution. Mm -hmm. If you've got physical food passing through a whole chain of people, anybody can take some off or adulterate it or, or whatever. Whereas if something is being delivered very clearly to one person who has their identity specified through the, the new unique identity, identity system, that, that's, that's a way of, of changing it. Uh, the, the point about dynasty is, again, too large in a way to address, but it's something that is getting worse. Uh, one of the things I've written about in, in the book, as you know, is the, the growth of dynasty, the fact that uh, if you look, for example, in the Congress party, that nine out of ten Congress MPs under the age of 40 uh, are, are sons and daughters of other major 
politician. So that is something that's getting worse. Uh, and just to touch quickly on the, the last point that you, you made, I think that when, you, when you're talking about the, the question of assimilation into Britain, of people who are coming from different parts of South Asia, I think it is important to remember the communities or the social groups that a lot of those people are coming from. Uh, you, 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 you speak about the Indian integration, which to a large extent is true. But don't forget a lot of the people who migrated in the 50s, 60s, 70s were people who were from communities who were already used to being traders or merchants or they were used to migrating around the world. Whereas people who are of, of Bangladeshi or Pakistani origin often come, came from very poor rural backgrounds. So that process of integration, I think, is, is quite different. But I, I'm not going to touch on the other two questions. I'd like to, just to, to make more time. Um, the first, there was some comment, I'm not sure in what context, but Muhajirs living in shanty towns in Karachi. People of all ethnic groups can be found living in shanty towns in Karachi. So you might say that's a strange form of assimilation. But I mean, it's not in any way that Muhajirs more than anyone else is living in, in shanty towns. It's quite untrue, I think. Um, the question about Pakistan and India, who are we talking about? Um, thank you for raising that. And of course, one of the things we haven't done here in, in the limited time is to talk about that, the way that narrative of Islam has been used and, and changed. Um, and I'm glad you brought up the anti-Ahmadi riots in, in the 50s. Because in fact, what's very relevant, you have yesterday or day before an 80-year-old Ahmadi man was killed in Nawab Shah. Um, so, so the persecution of the Ahmadis is extraordinary. It's illegal to say in Pakistan that the Ahmadis go to mosques because you know, the state says they're non-Muslims. To get a passport, you have to sign a declaration, which I have signed, and all of us who are Pakistani are signed, saying, in order to get a travel document, I need to say that Ahmadis are not Muslim. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So it's absurd. But so let's look at what happened in the 50s. There were anti-Ahmadi riots and there were court cases afterwards. And Maulana Maududi was found guilty of instigating them and was put on trial, was found guilty, was sentenced to death. It was commuted after the intervention of the Saudi government, we should add. This was in the 50s. Um, so let's remember those bits of our history that go back quite a far away. Today, there's no question that someone of Maulana Maududi's statue, this is the man who um, founded the Jamaat Islami, would ever be uh, sentenced to death. Uh, we only have to think of the way the assassin um, of Governor Tasir was garlanded um, and had ro rose petals thrown on him, and the, the judge who found him guilty had to leave the country. Um, so it's, it's a very different narrative. The finest, finest document, the finest piece of writing to have come out of Pakistan and in a certain context, this includes Fares, this includes Manto, this includes anyone. The finest and most relevant piece of, doc, piece of writing to come out of Pakistan is the Munir Kayani report looking into the causes of the anti-Ahmadi riots. It is a brilliant thing. It's available on the internet. Go and look it up, particularly those of you who are from Pakistan. It should be required reading. And one of the fantastic things they do, totally deadpan, it's like it's satire better than Moni Mohsen and Mohammed Hanif could ever come up with. They, they, and I speak with great love and reverence for both these writers. They gather together 10, 12, 15 ulema, right? So from different schools of Islam. And they just ask this one question, what are the basic minimum requirements a person must fulfill in order to be a Muslim? And then they record without, they just record the 15 different answers. And at the end, very dryly, they note that if you fall in line with what any one of them says, you are in fact an apostate according to the other 14. 
And if you fall in line with some 16th, then you are an apostate according to all of them, and that in fact 14 of them are apostates according to the 15th. So what is this? What is this Islam? But they also note, and this is significant, as early as I think it was, 50, was it 56? I think it was 56. They note as early as that, that in Pakistan, if the word Islam is raised as a reason to do something, people can be convinced to do almost anything. And that is what one of the tragedies of, of the nation has been, that, that what was then, you know, it, it wasn't used to the same extent, but it's been there. It's been there all along. And if you look in 47, the way that Islam in danger was used, and it was used, uh, say, in, in KP to, to put down someone like Abdul Ghaffar Khan, who was allied to the Congress, one, the way his support was eroded was by saying, Islam in danger, he's allying with those other people. And someone who in the 30s had been a fantastically popular figure, found as partition was approaching, his popularity eroding because he was in, accused of, of working against Islam. Um, so it's, it's been there since the very beginning, but of course you're totally right um, that what was something that was you know, just bubbling along the sides um, has been co-opted. And of course, Ziaul Haq bears the primary responsibility, but everyone has seized upon it and used it. Um, and your so-called secular politicians are, not that they call themselves secular, but the ones who are considered more secular as happy to use religion towards their own end. Um, there was, there's a wonderful line in Sarah Soleri's Meatless Days when, when she talks about how religion left the home and took to the streets. Um, and I think that is, is in some ways what is happening in Pakistan. Um, how does language factor further discontent? Well, it does. Um, and, and not only English. You know, one of the early causes of discontent was, was having Urdu as the official language um, in East Pakistan as well as it then was, right? Um, and, and that can be as controversial as the use of English. So it's not that it, English is controversial and any other language is non-controversial. In certain places, if you speak Punjabi or Urdu or Pashto, it'll be much more troublesome than if you speak English. Um, English, of course, is troublesome in a class way. Other languages have other reasons. But there is, you know, it's always complicated. Yeah. Um, talking about corruption, I think in India, um, you know, we all know the success story that is India at the moment. You know, it's the second highest economic growth rate. And just last week, I read that polio has been eradicated. And uh, there was an economist survey which, uh, of ha the level of happiness, which is now the sort of the new latest uh, sort of yardstick. And uh, uh, India, and along with Mexico and Indonesia, proclaimed themselves the happiest countries in the world, which was, you know, which says something, you know, so they came in, you know, in that sort of, um, in, they came much higher than European countries or America. But having said that, I mean, behind these sort of shining figures, you know, there are four sort of, well, they're the, what I call are the sort of the four C's that are eating away at the sort of the dynamism that's India, and that's, you know, caste, class, cronism, and corruption, you know. Um, even the middle classes, which are the fastest growing sort of um, the success story that driving the engine of growth in India, uh, they still have a sort of very feudal sense of privilege and entitlement, um, along with this sort of rampant consumerism. And the government, the Indian government is focusing too much, I feel, on, uh, it's not so much looking, competing with the West anymore. I think it's, over, it's competing more with China now at the moment. And in terms of uh, these sort of uh, huge, you know, we, they just have the, we just, uh, Delhi just hosted the Formula One Grand Prix thing. 
uh, Formula Track Race, and then you know they're spending so much on these sort of shopping malls and uh, the Commonwealth Games was a disaster. So I feel the whole focus of the government has you know just uh, skewed in favor of these huge uh, sort of five-star projects, but whereas the root causes of, say, sort of illiteracy and just a bold statistic, I mean, 700 million people in India don't have access to clean, hygienic toilets, you know. So that's like the whole population of Europe. Uh, so unless these sort of the, the boring bits of uh, ec uh, economics uh, of development aren't uh, catered to, you know, in terms of roads or schools or clean water, I feel that you know India will keep getting dragged down, you know. And uh, talking about identity, I think um, we in—I mean, we are at, at this sort of talk, you know. In this, this uh, we are talking about Indians and Pakistanis. But you know, how do the British portray? We are seen as Asians, you know. So already, you know, I think we've moved, we've made progress in the sense we've differentiated between Indians and uh, Pakistanis. But. Um, I feel that um, in order to give a voice to a community, especially a minority community, you need an umbrella term. And for that, uh, in that sense, you know, I know we should differentiate and say, you know, differentiate according to gender, class, age, etc. But um, I just feel these labels are like flags of convenience, and you can have certain overarching assumptions, and you can conveniently plot them, you know beneath each, say, you know, beneath an Indian or a Pakistani, and especially in um, where you are in a minority state and you, and you want to have a stake in something, you know, in the decision-making process. So it's a matter, it's a way of unifying disparate voices and giving them one sort of body. We have time for one more round. So gentlemen here. Um, I think the two of them... Yes, the lady with the pink scarf and the man in, her, in the front row. Um, Thanks. I, I was also interested in uh, the idea of English as a language of, of privilege, um, which is obviously true up to a point, but as I understand it, one of India's best-selling authors in English is Chetan Bhagat, mm -hmm. who's not a, a literary author and yeah. certainly doesn't write in the Queen's English or even the English of, um, of Arkin Orion or, or someone like that but in the English of spoken by Indian teenagers and 20-somethings. And it's, by, you know, by British or American standards, it's quite ropey. There's all kinds of odd solecisms that come in. Um, but it's also quite dynamic and sprinkled with other languages and so on. Um, and it seems, I, I wonder whether it's maybe more difficult than we think to draw a distinction between an English-speaking elite and non-English speakers. When, in fact, there are people who speak English badly, there are people who pretend to speak English but don't really. Um, and it, it's, it's quite a, a, a complicated situation. And in fact, Bagot's books are about um, and for a, a relatively privileged class, but it's very much relative. And it seems that a lot of it is about this fact that there's a, a class of people who are caught between success and failure. And it, it's, it's a very thin line to make it into shining India or not. And a lot of that success will depend not just on their own efforts, but on the broader situation. Nobody's actually in control of modernity in India. But I wonder if, if uh, is that too optimistic to think that there's more fluidity? Is there still basically a stratification? And one measure of that might be the evolution of, of Indian English. Do you think there will ever settle in an Indian English and there's an American English? Um, so that it won't just be odd mistakes and, and so on, but actually something becomes formalized. Maybe that's less likely in a, in a kind of internet age. Um, but I, I wonder that you know, many um, young Indians in particular speak a particular type of English. And if there are, if there are millions of them, it's hard to call it wrong. Um, so at some point, will, will, will that be established into um, something which can be recognized as Indian English? 
thank you. Uh, I just want to actually um, pick up on two points uh, that have been made by the panel and the audience. Um, I want to go back to uh, Patrick's um, um, uh, idea of uh, siblings having, um, uh, and also Kamala actually, uh, that there are, although there are many cultural affinities and between the two countries, musically and in literature as well, uh, there is deep um, distrust, there is a huge political divide so I think the emphasis on estranged uh, is, is, cannot be ignored. And so I, want to, uh, I wonder which of um, these authors are going to be brave enough to address that, uh, because it is a question um, that needs to be addressed um, if this huge South Asian diaspora, particularly in this country, uh, they get along so well when they're away from their milieu. Uh, there, is, there is no question of being Indian or Pakistani, or indeed, being Muslim or not. And that's the other point I want to raise as a British uh, Pakistani. Um, whose Islam are we talking about? It, this isn't the uh, Islam of Pakistan even here. It is mm. the Islam of radicals coming from all over the Middle East, mm. um, brainwashing um, young individuals in universities. And, and in fact, these ISOCs, I mean, I know for a fact, my, when my own um, daughters were at Cambridge, uh, the one place they, they avoided after the first uh, uh, um, uh, introduction was the ISOC because even the Quran had been changed. The ISOC is the Islamic societies at these colleges. They are radical places and who's Islam? This is one question again which I think authors must address uh, particularly um, for the benefit of um, British Pakistan. Thank you. Um, thanks. Um, what do you see as the social consequences of urbanization? Um, and I'm thinking particularly in terms of the weakening of language and caste. Um, I'm going to leave the question on India and, and Indian English to, and Jatin Bhagat too. Those are, I, I, all I'll say is there's no equivalent in Pakistan um, of a Jatin Bhagat-like figure. Uh, not at the moment, but of course Pakistani English language publishing is, is several decades behind. But the numbers are just smaller. I mean, it is, it is a question that you're, the varied size of the populations are so different. Um, who will be brave enough to write about the estranged siblings? I'm not sure it requires bravery to require, to, to write about the Indo-Pakistan divide and mistrust because that's, that's such a commonplace narrative and such an accepted narrative on both sides. We both agree that we mistrust each other um, in the way that there's so much that we don't agree on about our own, own histories. Um, my second novel, Salt and Saffron, in a very tiny way, um, has a family divided by a partition. Um, and so it does have within it f the estrangement within a family um, and then sort of the later generation in some way trying to, but they do that by not discussing partition. We'll just agree to disagree on that, they say, and then we can, we can be friends. Um, it's funny about this question that when Indians and Pakistanis are away from India and Pakistan, they get on fine. I think it's a little more complicated than that. Um, when I was at university in America, it was a very small liberal arts college. There were maybe 10 South Asians in all. We got on fantastically well. Um, another friend of mine was at Boston University where there were several hundreds Indians and Pakistanis. They did not get on. They were large enough that you could have the India society and the Pakistan society, um, and there was apparently a lot of animosity between the two. So let's bear that in mind as well. Um, as for the question of, of writers who are going to address the who's Islam issue, I think the one writer who has been fantastic about British Muslims 
um, and a, a, a particular kind of Islam, not, not the only Islam you find in Britain, uh, but one that he knew about was Nadeem Aslam writing Maps for Lost Lovers, which is a, a brilliant book. Um, again, Nadeem would be the first person to say this doesn't represent all Muslims in Britain. It certainly doesn't rep represent all Islam, but it is, it is a look. Um, and his work has very often and in brilliant ways, uh, whether it's in Afghanistan, whether in Pakistan, um, his new book, The Blind Man's Garden, which Mary Gokhale sitting there is going to publish in India next year, is fantastic. Um, and he really does look at what people are being taught about their religion and different forms of, of religion. Um, and you know, the classical Islam versus Let's face it, modernity, you know, it's a very modern version of Islam that we're seeing now uh, with its particular permutations. So Nadeem Aslam is a guy who's writing about that, I think, better than anyone else. Um, what are the social consequences of urbanization? How many hours have you got? <laughs> you know, I'm from Karachi. That's, we could just go on about this. Um, but I, I was talking to a friend of mine, the journalist Huma Yusuf, um, and we, we were actually, because I was talking to her about this event, so it's just one tiny thing. Um, and I said, okay, so when tribal allegiances are what they are in certain places, what happens when people move, let's say, to Karachi, um, which is really unique in Pakistan for being, you know, it's a city of somewhere between 15 and 20 million. Um, it, it is the largest Mohajir city in Pakistan. It is the largest, well, it's the largest Mohajir city, therefore, in the world because they don't exist outside. Um, it's the largest Pashtun city in the world. There are more Pashtuns in Karachi than there are in Peshawar or Kabul or Kandahar or anywhere else. Um, this doesn't make for happy um, relationships necessarily. But I said, what happens to, let's say, the Pathan tribal structures when you have this migration into Karachi? Do they break down because of urbanization and a new... Um, space in which you find yourself. And she said, and this is always a crucial thing, she said, among the different tribes, the women still don't get to marry out. Right? You still marry within your tribe. And I think that, that is a, a, always a very interesting question to me about, you know, about um, change and, and urbanization and, and what happens when people come together. Commercially, they might find their lives totally entwined. At what point do the women start marrying out? It's, it's, you know, I think the first question you have to look at. Um, and I said to her, she said, you know, and it's still in, in Karachi, the, the Afridis are the Afridis and the Masoods are the Masoods, except when they are together against the Mohajirs, when, you know, because they have different political parties they're affiliated with, there's a lot of violence associated with that. Um, and so again, it becomes a question of context. Um, but you do find in Karachi, different kinds of social changes that are taking place. And one, the, the, the urban planner, Arif Hassan, said one of the most remarkable things, which no one talks about, is the huge spike in court weddings, in court marriages, um, rather than you know, going to your Malvi and doing via your family. He says that in, in Karachi, there's been this sort of astonishing spike. And he said most court marriages um, in some way reflect someone who is marrying without their families all getting together. Um, and agreeing to it, and there's a huge spike in that. Um, he also had a very interesting and strange take on the matter of honor killings, which is slightly getting away from it, but it's, it's worth mentioning, I think, just to talk about how complicated it is to try and understand sometimes the things you see from far away. Um, he did a study on honor killings. So he went around, not just in urban areas, but to lots of rural areas primarily, um, where he'd heard there'd been honor killings, 
And he asked the question, have there always been honor killings? And he asked them of people who were older than, say, 60 or 70. And they'd answer, yes, there have always been honor killings. Have they always been in this number? Oh, no, no, there are many more now. You know, they'd say a generation ago, there'd be one, and then we'd talk about it for the next year or two years or three years until there was the next one, and now you can't keep up. And he said, why are there so many more honor killings? Guess what the answer is? Because the young people have become shameless. He said, if you actually translate that, you look at what it, it is because more young men and women are now behaving in ways that they weren't supposed to. They're breaking those old rules. Uh, they're making different kinds of choices, which they didn't do so much before. And then he asked the follow-up question, will they ever stop? And the answer was, um, yes, because soon we'll all be shameless. So, I, I mean, I look forward to that. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'll just quickly try and answer the questions in reverse. Yeah, the urbanization question is so interesting because it's so varied, the, the response to it. But, I mean, clearly distinctions of caste, distinctions of, of language are breaking down in India extraordinarily uh, quickly. And so, for example, the thing of people marrying out of caste is, is accelerating. And yet, at the same time, there are so many uh, conservative patterns which are still in place. Um, I read just this morning a, a fascinating article um, by Snigta Punam in Caravan magazine uh, about dating services in India. And if you read uh, English language uh, magazines, you read a magazine like Indian Vogue or Outlook, uh, you'd think that India was sex in the city kind of times 1.2 <laughs> billion people. And yet the reality is that for a lot of those people is that they are just beginning to navigate and negotiate the idea that they like the idea of a love marriage, but how on earth will they meet uh, a boy or a girl in a respectable way? It's a very tentative uh, process, much more tentative than the impression you get from the magazines that you get at airports and railway stations. Um, on the thing of the estranged siblings, I, I wrote about that in uh, my book, Liberty or Death, about the partition, which may even be on sale outside here, uh, <laughs> in a cut-price paperback edition. Uh, on on, on the, the point about Jetan Bhagat, I mean, it's half true, really, what, what, you're, what you're suggesting. Uh, what you're seeing there is the voice of a new elite. It's a post-economic liberalization elite. But again, it's still it's an urban middle-class voice. I'm actually a big admirer of Jetan Bhagat's books. I mean, conventionally, you're meant to say they're terrible and trashy, but I, I enjoy them very much, and I think that they do give a, a great insight into a certain way of looking at the world, but they, they, are, not, they, they are not the mass. They are still a, a different section uh, of the English-speaking elite. And it may be a kind of much more uh, varied form of English, but it is, it is still that elite. Uh, very briefly, because we're running out of time. Um, I believe English can be considered a language of India now. I feel uh, for a country that's so diverse and um, not just linguistically, well, pr primarily because of its uh, different regional identities and languages. In fact, um, at the time of partition, um, uh, Hindi was considered to be, uh, to be introduced as an official language, and um, there was a, a lot of... Um, protest and resentment about that from South India. So English is necessary, uh, it's a necessary bridge between all the different communities and ethnicities that make up India. And also the English in India is unique. It's what Rushdie called, you know, we've done a sort of a chutnification of language, you know. It's become a, its own sort of um, animal with its own rhythms, its own uh, intonations, and its own sort of mongrel identity. And, uh, and I think that's only a good thing, you know, because languages are dynamic, you know, they're organic. 
I mean, we don't want um, something, you know, I mean, something really sad has been now passed last week. I mean, the Indian government is debating about declaring Sanskrit as a dead language, you know. So I feel that um, for an Indian that wants to take uh, its rightful role in the world, on the world stage, English is great, you know, it's given its a great economic advantage over China, say. And, um, and why not fashion it according, to, you know, to reflect your own particular, you know, your, why not bring flavor to it? So, so long may Chetan Bhagat and his ilk continue. And uh, regarding the mistrust between the two communities, I feel that more than um, literature, probably popular culture in terms of Bollywood or music, you know, they might be a better, um, they might be a better sort of medium to conquer this sort of, um, this intrinsic, and, uh, suspicion and in fact they do succeed you know you have uh, you know Pakistani singers who are coming to uh, the subcontinent and in Bollywood films that are being you know viewed and enjoyed in Pakistan so you know as long as there's sort of cultural interaction I feel and uh, uh, this sort of you know it can't be an overnight uh, sort of burying the hatchet but you know it's we're going in the right direction definitely we have um, Marshal Kadri, who's going to tell us about the Pakistan week. Sorry. Hi. Um, I'm sure all of you enjoyed this discussion as much as I did. And one thing I know for sure is when I go back home in June, I'm going to go to Takte Bahi. <laughs> but um, I think the timing of this discussion was perfect because India week ended last week. And we just started Pakistan Week on Monday with the flash mob and the Bhangra run, if any of you saw. Um, but I just wanted uh, to let all of you know that we still have two more events. There is one tonight at 8 on the war on terrorism, and there's another one um, tomorrow afternoon where Mr. Dao Rahman, who is the ex-chairman of the High Education Commission, is coming to speak. Um, so if you like our page on Facebook, you'll get a whole rundown of the events. Um, and if nothing else, please head to the fourth floor on the old building because we have Pakistani food and music. <laughs> and it tastes really good. And, yeah. So thank you. Thank you, Masha. So all the best for the Pakistan week. I'd like to thank Louis Gaskell and Nicholas Martin for put this, putting this together, and the audience for having a very engaging discussion, and all our panelists. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.